One day I was flying an old uh, light glider during a contest and I got a really strong thermal. And then, you know, the thermal started to be even stronger and it flipped my glider. I, I had no controls. So in a couple of seconds, there I was, you know, spinning upside down with a wooden-made glider from the 70s. A mountain range section 177 kilometers long, 4,000 meters high, and a glider without any radio. This was the scenario Alejo Williamson Davila was dealing with in December 1964 when he took off from the Club de Planeadores de Vitacura in Santiago, Chile, destination Mendoza, Argentina. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our new guest pilot. Thank you, Dave, and thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure. We greatly appreciate it. I also want to thank our Patreon pilots for the continued support. If you would like to be a Patreon pilot, just head over to patreon.com slash soaringthesky, or you can click the link in the show notes. And you can always go to our website where we have some other options to help out the show. We have another exciting episode for you today. First, we chat with eight-time Brazilian champion Enrique Navarro, glider, competition pilot, instructor, aerobatic instructor, and author. He has also competed several times in the World Gliding Championships in France in 2006, then Argentina 2012, and Finland in 2014, Lithuania 2016, Czech Republic 2018. Enrique has broken 33 national records in Brazil, has over 5,000 hours in the glider, over 500 in airplanes, and that was mostly towing gliders, and he's flown 64 different glider types. Wow. He is also a sales agent for the Shemp Hearth Gliders. You know, I really enjoyed our chat with him as he shared his adventures, and I know you're really going to enjoy it too. Like the time he was in the glider on tow in the air and the nose kept coming up. He was getting no response when he pushed the stick forward, so he had to think fast. Enrique has a lot to share with us from his journey. Also today, I am happy to bring you another soaring adventure from our friend Sergio, the Soaring Master. It's a story that takes place in 1964, and it's about the first glider pilot attempting to cross the highest point of the Andes Mountain in a glider that didn't even have a working radio in the cockpit. You are not going to want to miss this truly amazing story. All that and more right now on Soaring the Sky. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean, you can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. 
They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Enrique Navarro, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm so excited to have you here today and talk to you. How are you doing? I'm pretty good today. So talking with you a little bit in our pre-interview, clearly you have done some pretty amazing stuff over your soaring career. Eight-time Brazilian national champion, six-time participant in the World Gliding Championships from 2006 to 2018, over 5,000 hours and 64 different glider types, and you have broken 33 national records in, in Brazil. I mean, that is an amazing resume. Please tell us how all that got started and just as much as you want to share with us about this amazing journey you have had. Okay, Chuck. Uh, well, happy to be here. And, uh, well, it, it might seem odd, but, you know, flying wasn't my thing. I, I have several pilots in my family. Um, for example, one of my uncles, he was the, the founder of a gliding club in Brazil. I used to have a twin brother uh, who was a good glider pilot, and he was an airline pilot as well, but not me. I mean, I had the opportunity uh, to be a pilot when I was 17, but honestly, I did not want it. So I actually became a pilot, you know, by accident. I, I remember I was like 24 years old and I was living with uh, another Enco and, uh, and he, he was not a pilot. And one day he said, you know, I'm going to buy a ultralight, a ultralight airplane. And I had the reaction of a normal people. I said, you know, forget about it. It's too dangerous. I mean, let's buy a boat. We can have much more fun. And I, I almost convinced him you know, to change his mind. But luckily, I didn't. So eventually, you know, he bought the Utrelite. So, I mean, nothing to do. So I, I, I asked my brother to give us flying lessons. And then, I mean, the first time I was actually airborne with that Utrelite with my brother, Know, right by my side. Well, there where is uh, all started. I mean, the passion for flying. And then I, I continued to fly. You know, the ultralight, and I really wanted to explore the limits. So, you know, I start you know doing some basic aerobatics, and one day I remember I had like you know 15 hours of total flight time, and I called my brother and I and I said I told him you know I have this plan for next weekend. And the plan was to do a looping with the ultralight. I mean, just to get a picture, the ultralight oh, wow. uh, was more like <laughs> <laughs> the, the ultralight was was like a camping tent with a Rotax engine on top. It was, you know, it was pretty basic type. Uh, so as soon as my brother heard that, he said, "Okay, stop. It. <laughs> uh, you need." <laughs> I, I'm glad he said that. He said, "You need to know gliding." Otherwise, you're going to get yourself killed because gliding can offer you a, a full range of possibilities, you know, to explore the limits safely. So he said, forget about your looping plan. Next weekend, I'm scheduled, you know, to fly a glider in an air show. So you're going to go with me. And that is how I start gliding, you know, participating in an aerobatic routine during an air show. Of course, I was just a P2 but then I realized, you know, the full potential of gliding. I said, you know, I could focus on flying for fun, aerobatics, you know, being a gliding instructor, 
cross-country soaring competitions. So this is wow. how I started. So let's talk about the 64 glider types you've flown. I mean, first of all, I have to say that just sounds crazy. I mean, most of us glider pilots probably have less than 10 types under our belts, but 64? Can you share with the audience some of the highlights and the lowlights with all these gliders? What stands out in your memory, <laughs> either good or bad? And I know there's a lot of them, but maybe just pick a few and share with us. Uh, well, you know, there are basically two reasons why uh, I have flown so many gliders uh, types. Uh, first, because I really like to know what every glider has to tell me. I mean, uh, there's always something to learn from each glider. And, and if we talk about different gliders and not glider types, then I, ha I have flown more than 100 you know, different gliders. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. And the second reason is because I like to do test flights. So eventually I get invitations, you know, from friends and everyone else, you know, for such, you know, test flights. And it's, uh, and sometimes I, I am able to bring back to life a glider that hasn't been flown for more than 20, 25 years. And this is something really, mm. really special. Um, you asked about the highlights and the lowlights. Uh, I have flown gliders from the 40s until the present era. So, so I, I was able to comprehend, you know, the evolution of a gliding construction right there in my hands. That, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, so I could see the, you know, I, I could see actually, you know, the evolution of wing profiles, you know, wing loadings, spin getting bigger and bigger and bigger, handling, and all the positives and negatives because, you know, everything is a compromise. When, when If we are talking about gliding design, everything is a compromise. I mean, you, you gain a little bit there and you might lose a little bit there. So you ask me, you know, to, to pick up one glider to comet. Well, maybe because of this compromise that I just mentioned. Uh, maybe the Arcos. You know, the Arcos, I believe, is one of the best compromise today because... It's just like you can you can get a little bit of everything. I mean, you can combine a high wing loading, a good LD. You know, the handling is, is the same of an old 15-meter glider. In the ground, is not a problem uh, as the big open-class gliders. I mean, with the big open-class gliders, you need a soccer team, you know, to rig and rig. And um, and with the Arcos, I mean, you can participate in top-level competitions in, in, by being a two-seater. You know, you can bring your lovely ones to fly with you. So, you know, the, the Arcos, I believe, is is the glider that I would mention that um, has, you know, most of the qualities. It's a very interesting glider. Now, I understand that you teach aerobatics. Can you share with our listeners what you think the average pilots maybe can learn and take away from the aerobatic training? Is it just for exhibition and showing off, or are there skills that the average pilot can take away and build from in their day-to-day -day soaring? Well, as I mentioned before, my, my first flight was actually, you know, in an air show. Uh, later on, I became an aerobatic instructor, uh, both in, in gliders and airplanes. And, and I do aerobatics because I like it and because, you know, it, it helps me to be a better pilot. Um, you know, with aerobatics, you learn how to navigate in the border of the envelope. And, and this helps me, you know, basically in two things uh, precision flying and safety so precision flying you know by being a better pilot uh, you can fly your aircraft more precisely 
and this can give you a competitive advantage in a competition, for example. Uh, well, just one example. I, I'm in a competition and you have the turning points. Um, I believe I can have 5, 10 seconds advantage on every turning point. You know, just flying more precisely than some competitor. Uh, then, then you do the math. You can imagine that in a, in a, during a one task, you might have like five turning points. So 10 seconds every time you have a turning point. And let's say you're, you're flying really fast. Then we will be talking about almost one kilometer per hour advantage in your task speed in one single day. And then you multiply by 10 competition days and you can imagine the positive impact on your score your total score so this is a, this is one what uh, example of what precision flying can do well the, the second that i mentioned is safety uh in, in aerobatics we learn how to put the glider in any you know position attitude speed you could think and then we return to the original position so any position that you know mother nature decides to put the glider I can say, you know, I, I have been there before, so it's not a, not a big deal. Uh, just one example. Uh, I was flying, one day I was flying a, an old uh, light glider during a contest, and I got a really strong thermal. And then, you know, the thermal started to be even stronger. And it flipped my glider. I, I had no controls. So in a couple of seconds, there I was, you know, spinning upside down with a wooden made glider from the 70s. Well, thanks to aerobatics, I, I, I quickly stopped the spin and I rejoined the thermal immediately. So that, that entire episode took me no more than a couple of minutes from my performance in that competition day. And in terms, in terms of safety, you know, it was totally uneventful. Again, thanks to aerobatics. So th that's why I, I strongly recommend for anyone, for pleasure or for, uh, uh, or for competition, you know, people to, to get involved in aerobatics. Absolutely. I mean, that could have turned out totally different. Yeah. Something we always like to ask about here on the podcast, and that is, how are things going with getting new pilots into soaring in your country? Uh, recently in Brazil, uh, we lowered uh, the minimum age to get a, a glider license, so it's now 16 years old. Uh, but you know, in Brazil, we are still struggling, like most countries. I mean, when it comes to you know, get more people uh, into gliding, I mean, that's that's a problem that we all share. Uh, one thing that I believe you know could make the difference is to have more women engaged in gliding. Uh, in Brazil, maybe 5% of our glider pilots are women. So you, you can imagine the impact if we are successful in raising this number to 20, 30%. And uh, the reason why I, I mentioned that is because uh, gliding is one of the very few sports where uh, women can compete with 100% of equality with men, you know, because it is a mental game. So, you know, let's see. That, that could be the future. Let's see. Oh, absolutely. Enrique, can you tell us a little bit about your glider? I know you've flown so many types, but how did you land on the glider that you primarily fly now? And for a two-seater, what is your favorite for cross-country? Well, I, I, I just mentioned before that ARC is a very interesting 
glider. So uh, for a two-seater, uh, for cross-country, the Orcus. I mean, I have flown the Orcus in the last World Gliding Championship in Czech Republic, and it's a beast. So uh, answering the two-seater question is the Orcus. About my glider, <coughs> my glider is a, a Nimbus 4T. Uh, T Tango, it stands for the sustain, the one with the sustainer engine, and the tail code is November one. So I, uh, the thing is, I, I really love you know the big birds, the open class gliders. So I used to have a Nimbus three Tango Turbo, and uh, you know I, I was trying to improve it because this is what competition pilots do. I mean we are always trying to improve the glider, and one day I realized that you know there's not too much to do anymore. I mean, if I want to, if I want more performance, then I need to shift to a Nimbus 4. So that's how I decided to buy a Nimbus 4. So I started looking for one, and actually I found two, one in, one in Australia, one in the Netherlands. And now I was actually you no know, planning to go there and check the gliders. And then uh, I saw this advertising, and it was saying, the best Nimbus 4 in the world. I mean, I have to admit, it, it really got me. You know, it, it was a catchy phrase. And I thought, you know, what if this guy is right? I mean, what, what if this is real, really the best Nimbus 4 in the world? So I, I said, okay, I, I need to go, go there and give it a try. So uh, the glider was in the UK and it belonged to Pete Harvey. You know, Pete is a top competition pilot, you know, besides being a very, very nice person. Uh, Pete was three times European champion, oh, wow. several times top five in the World Glider Championship, and more than 10 times a British champion. With that glider, with November 1, and uh, when you buy a glider from a competition pilot, well, then you know that someone has taken care of all the details. So this is one of my rules. I mean, I always buy a glider from a competition pilot. So I did it. I, I, I flew the glider in the UK and it was you know, incredible. I immediately fell in love with November 1. And, you know, uh, the way those long wings tell me uh, what's going on in the air, you know, how the energy lines seems endless, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, with November 1, I have done the fastest flight ever done in Brazil in a glider. Uh, it was 173 uh, kilometers per hour speed in a 500 kilometers oh, fast. Nice. Yes. So I, I just love that glider. So that that's my glider. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that's interesting that you brought up. But when you buy a glider, where it came from, because that obviously that's going to make all the difference in the world because you don't always know what you're buying. <laughs> But I think that's a, yes. good, a good motto that you go by. You buy it from other competition pilots. Yes, and, and again, I, I'm buying a glider to compete for the next decade. So, I mean, you, need, you have to go. For me, it's mandatory. Go there, see the glider, and most important, see the person. See the person. All the gliders that I have bought, one of the most important things is I, I want to see the person. And yep. because it, it, it's going it, to, it's going to go straight to the glider, and then uh, so all, all the gliders that I I, I I bought, they belong to to very nice person. That's important. That's some great advice. I know it's almost impossible to answer, but because all the flights, of course, you've had. But what's the single most satisfying day or flight during a soaring competition? And could you just kind of walk us through that day? 
I know it's hard, but just try to randomly pick one. Well, as you mentioned, so many flights, but uh, let's pick up one. Uh, in my first national championship with November 1, uh, in the second task, uh, I was the only one to, to come back home. Um, you know, it was a difficult task. We had an overcast situation for you know, most of the first and second leg. But eventually, I, I managed to survive and I reached the second turning point. Okay, the problem is, there was this huge thunderstorm right over the turning point. You know, a turning point in, in competitions is what we call a, a beer can. So it's a 500 meters cylinder that you need to be there. And, and the thunderstorm was much bigger than that. So I, I couldn't go, you know, sideways, whatever. So uh, the thunderstorm cloud was stationary. And it seems like uh, it was going to take more than 50 minutes to, to be over. I mean, that, that was a time I could not lose. I, I was competing. So um, I knew I would lose. Uh, I would have no visibility, and that was the main problem. I mean, besides the height that I, I was going to lose, the, actually the main problem is visibility. You know, it was a very heavy rain. I knew I, I was not going to see a thing. And then I noticed uh, a lake at 4 o'clock you know, over my right shoulder, and there was a sunlight reflecting that lake, and it was very strong. So I thought, you know... Maybe, maybe, maybe that light will be strong enough to penetrate in the rain and I'll be able to see it you know, when I'm inside the, the, all the rain and the chaos. And then I, I can have the control of the glider. So I enter into the rain. I was just like 200 kilometers per hour just you know, to make it fast. I was not looking forward. I was looking you know, mostly over my shoulder to see the sunlight you know, reflecting the lake. And it was actually... You know, heavy rain, you know, the variometer was all the way down. But even with zero visibility, I was still able to see the light. So I could keep, you know, the control of the glider. Then I reached the turning point. I did a U-turn and I came back, you know, again, using the sunlight as the reference. So I, I got off the, the thunderstorm uh, low. I, I might have lost like a thousand meters. But eventually, I managed to climb in front of the same thunderstorm. And uh, later on, I was the only pilot to complete the task. And this is, you know, in a, in a national championship, this is always a, a special moment. Wow, that, that's amazing. Amazing how you got through that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have one of those moments where you were looking back and you thought, well, that almost wasn't good? And also, maybe you could share some thoughts on what you learned from those moments. I had issues, maybe maybe because of my test flying activities. I, I I have had issues with pretty much all the parts of a glider. I mean, ailerons, rudder, spoilers, gear, tow cable, the tow plane itself. I mean, you name it. But you know, tail plane, it, it it's a more delicate thing because if you are high. Then you have more more possibilities. I mean, more things to try. But if you are low, you know, you are down to just a couple of potential actions. So, and, and that's the story I, I I want to share. I was you know test flying this old glider. It was a Brazilian design from the the fifties, and and the glider was you know was completely rebuilt. So I need to, that that's the reason for the test flight. I mean, it has been more than one year they were rebuilding the glider. 
So you, you know that uh, those old gliders, well, they have very low speeds. So normally they, uh, um, they fly much earlier than, than the tow plane. So as soon as, as I was airborne, I pressed uh, the stick a little bit forward, you know, just to maintain the glider behind the tow plane. But the glider continued to go up. Uh, that, that was the issue. I had no uh, uh, pitch control, I mean, forward pitch control. So uh, I immediately did, you know, the, the, the few things I could have done. I released uh, the tow cable because normally the, the momentum the tow cable causes is to force the glider's nose up. So I released the tow cable. I put the elevator trim forward. And then I released myself from the seat belts, not because I wanted to jump. I mean, it was too low for that. Just because I want to move you know, the center of gravity of the glider forward. You know, eventually it, it worked. So the glider stopped climbing. So I just wait a little bit and little by little it start went down and I and it gently touch it down. And that was the story. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Looking over your bio that you emailed us, you're the Shemperth agent there in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about the business side of being a glider agent? How is that going and what trends do you see on what kind of gliders maybe people are buying? And Brazil has some really high import duties and imported on imported product is that a real barrier for you to grow the business in brazil how do you stack up against schleicher on sales um no the the shepherd story is that i i want to buy a, a nimbus 4 a brand new ones and and then then i, I scheduled a visit to to shepherd so you, you know those lists of you know places you must visit before you die well Shepherd must be there. I mean, for a glider pilot, for us, is our Disneyland. It's incredible. So, you know, making a, making a long story short, it was supposed to be one hour visit to buy a Nimbus 4. It, it ended up, you know, that I stayed there for like five hours and I became the agent for, for Brazil. And so far, it has been more than 10 years. And, and for me, it's a privilege, you know, to be part of the ship hit firmly because, you know, the guys are great. And the, again, it's, it's always to be in a Disneyland for me. So, and uh, you asked about the, the trends and import duties. Uh, uh, in Brazil, all the ship hurt gliders that I have sold had engine, you know, either a sustainer or a self-launching engines, you know, simply because with an engine, uh, you can pay taxes as an airplane, and airplanes is much uh, the, the, the taxes for airplanes are much lower than for gliders. Yet, just to give you one example, in Brazil, a dual discus pier glider and a dual discus with a sustainer engine, they will cost exactly the same. Wow, it's, it's incredible! <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. 
The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. So how about the glider port that you're flying out of? Can you tell me a little bit about that? What kind of operation? Yeah, yeah. Well, the name is Bebedouro, so that's where I fly. And it's in the southeast region of Brazil, in the Sao Paulo state. You know, Bebedouro is considered to be one of the, you know, Brazilian soaring paradise. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of landable areas, you know, few airspace restrictions, you know, uh, record-breaking weather, you know, from September to December. Uh, you, you, you pretty much have, you know, good weather in almost the entire year. And the most important thing, you know, friendship. I mean, guys there are great, and we always we are always happy to take visitors to fly. Uh, you know, most of the speed and distance records in Brazil were broken there. And pilots from other places they go there for soaring camps. And every like three or four years, the national uh, gliding championships are held there. So it's a great place to fly. Those are the good news. The bad news is that I live in Sao Paulo city, so my normal weekend it's, uh, it, it involves a 800 uh, kilometer drive with my truck. So that's, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. What we do to go soaring, right? Yes, <laughs> what we do to go soaring. <laughs> Yeah, winding down the interview a little bit, but um, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to in the soaring world? Mentors, competitors, family, anybody <laughs> before I let you uh, go? You know, uh, honestly, that one goes to you. I mean, uh, our soaring community needs visibility and your work is fantastic. I mean, uh, the way you are promoting gliding is unique. I really thank you for that. I'm sure... I'm speaking the name of all glider pilots around the world. So thank you. Thank you for promoting gliding with our channel. Incredible. Thank you, Henrique. I'm humbled by your words. I greatly appreciate that. And we will um, keep trying to do what we're doing and make the soaring world bigger. But thank you. <laughs> Time to have some fun, all right? Not that we weren't okay. having fun, but something a little bit something we started here a little while ago and that's our uh, soaring lightning round and maybe you've heard it yeah so i'm going to ask you some questions you can answer the question or you can pass what do you think are you ready good to go all right let's have some fun what's the biggest or heaviest item in your land out kit i'm not gonna lie to you i don't have a land out kit in the nimbus <laughs> I, I know it's a, it's a no problem it's a bad example for beginners but it is what it is <laughs> Uh, it, you're not the only one. Gloves while flying, even in summer. Uh, always gloves. I mean, ultraviolet radiation in Brazil is very, very strong and bad to the skin. I uh, can't imagine. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never really needed for normal conditions where you fly. Uh, never. Maybe eventually a portable O2 bottle. Uh, can I share a quick story? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, Okay, so one day I, I decided to buy a portable O2 bottle. Okay. Uh, you know those those bottles that uh, they can give you like, you know, 30 shots of oxygen, I mean, just in case. Right. I said, okay, that, that, that was going to be a good idea. Eventually I can bring in my glider. 
So I was in the US and I, I bought one in, in some website and I asked it to be delivered at my auto. So I was in Las Vegas and then the package arrived and I, I went downstairs to pick it up. Um, what I didn't know by then is that uh, some people in Las Vegas actually used you know, oxygen to recover from the day before, you know, all the drink, <laughs> yeah, all, all the drinking and stuff. You know, they even have those, you know, places in the street with O2 chambers. So they lock you in, they inject 100% of a pure oxygen, and then you walk away brand new. Welcome okay. to Vegas. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, welcome to Vegas. Once in Vegas. <laughs> so uh, I was there. I went downstairs. I opened the package in the lobby. And then the lady uh, from the hotel lobby, she smiled at me and she said, uh-huh, an O2 bottle. You're going to have a hell of a party. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I was just like, no, no, I, I am a family man. I mean, this is for sorry. <laughs> and she was like, okay, sorry, yes, whatever. Go to a party. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to convince this lady that it is really for sorry. So that, that's my O2 portable O2 bottle. Oh, my goodness, that's funny. Flight preparation, day before, morning of, and what are the things that you most commonly forget over the years? You know, the day before in a competition, I, 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 I always try to anticipate things. So I try to anticipate what the task setter will do. So at night, I check the weather and I, I build a, a potential task. Then next morning, I check the weather and I see what, have, what has changed. And then in the briefing, I received the official task. You know, the official task is released, and then I can compare with my task. And then I try to, under, I mean, if there's any difference, I try to understand what happens. So for me, it's a win-win situation. Either I am wrong, so I have something to learn, or sometimes I am right and, and you know, the task setter is wrong. So I have a competitive advantage because eventually I'm seeing something that, you know, the task setter is, is not seeing because, uh, you know, the meteorologist, uh, the guy that takes care from the meteorology is pretty good and much better than me. And the guy who's a task setter is also pretty good. But I am there every day flying and knowing the air masses. So I, I also have a, a, you know, a very important input. So sometimes, you know, I'm right and the other guys are wrong. And then that, that's a situation where I have a, a competitive advantage. And that, that's, that's what, I, what I do. Favorite soaring book? That, that that's a very you no know, difficult question because I have a lot of books and I, I really love all of them. Uh, for example, Winning from you know from George Moffat is may, maybe is the most inspiring one. You know, Sky Full of Heat is mandatory. You know, simply because you know every time Kawa talks, we need to stop and listen. Hold fast to your dreams from George Lee. You know, is not entirely about soaring, and exactly because of that, it is so important because you know it shows that everything is a balance in your sport, your work, and your family. One cannot succeed in competition, you know, without finding the balance. Uh, competing in gliders, you know, from Leo and Ricky Bligliadori, that book reached a new level in terms of soaring books. It's just amazing. Uh, the, the soaring engine from Gideo is also unique because, you know, by being an instructor himself, you know, he explained things in the most comprehensive way that I have ever seen. And if I have to, to mention one, then it has to be uh, the Bible. I mean, where all the soaring books started. And that is, 
you know, uh, cross-country soaring from Helmut Heichmann. You have some good books. Absolutely. Landau, you have two options, all right? It's Busy Towered Class Charlie Regional Airport or a relatively short but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. Well, in, in Brazil, most of the gliding sites are airports as well. So we are already there. So option A, the busy airport. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So you have to land out. Both the fields are the same surface and the length. There's a slight uphill with a 15-knot tailwind or a slight downhill with a 15-knot headwind. What do you think? Well, in, in the way you describe it, I mean, the slope is just slight and the wind is strong. Then I would go downhill. I mean, but, but just, just, just I, I would just like to add that uh, in, in big, heavy gliders, you know, downwind, uh, downhill, is always tricky because there's a lot of energy oh, yeah. to be dissipated. I mean, if your yep. wheel brake fails, you're going to be in trouble. So normally when, when the situation is not as, as aggressive as you described, normally I pick it up uphill because I know that one day I will stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. So there's, there's an emergency and you have two options. You can jump out with your parachute or you can land in the lake. Definitely the lake. In some world gliding championships, for I, I remember maybe in Sweden and in Finland, they even show in the morning briefing how to land in lakes. It's, it's safer than you know to land on trees, trees or the, or, oh, wow. or the place. Yep. Okay, so you're soaring, and what's your favorite soaring bird to follow and lift? No, the nor normal answer would be the vulture because it's the mo most common uh, soaring bird in Brazil. But uh, my, my answer is is the swallow. You know, the tiny uh, little blue birds. Because, uh, you know, the, the swallow, they are not soaring birds, but they are there after the insect. So w when you see a swallow, it really is a, it means a very very strong thermal. So and 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 they are beautiful. I, I really love oh, the okay. swallows. So that that's my no that that's the bird that you know makes my day. <laughs> flaps or no flaps? Flaps. Ridge lift or thermal lift? Uh, ridge mountain. Bucket hat, cap, bandana or stocking cap? Uh, sorting hat. Shoes, boots or barefoot? Comfortable boots. Water bottle or camelback? Camelback. 15 meter or 18 meter? Uh, well, I, 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 fly, I, I fly open class glider. So if I have to size it down, then I would go straight to the 15 meters. You know, but, but, uh, okay. but people say that the 18 meters are, are known to be the best fun per dollar. But anyway, the answer is 15 meters. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Wood. You know, that, that's plenty of material to knock in case of need. <laughs> Various sound in sync or quiet? Quiet. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Uh, unlocked on downwind leg. And then what I see, I, I see what to do, but, but eventually opened. Uh, uh, the Nimbus 4 has a unique feature. Uh, when you, you open the spoilers, the flaps also automatically moves you know, more positively. So okay. you, you can play as much as you want with the, the spoilers, and your stall nice. speed does not change. That that's that's very safe. Oh yeah, absolutely. Paper checklist or mnemonic? Paper. Last time you looked at the compass. <laughs> My Nimbus has no compass. 
So again, I'm giving I'm giving you a bad example to to beginners. <laughs> pee tube, pee bag, diaper, or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right when you jump out of the cockpit. Pee tube. Tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what. Tie down. I mean, the open class gliders. You, you don't you don't de rig it. It's a, it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Gatorade or water in summer flights. Water. What is your favorite single instrument in the cockpit? <clears throat> I know I might be cheating, but the LX8000, because it gives me everything. <laughs> so yes, I'm cheating. But <laughs> uh, oh, I understand. <laughs> tinted canopy or clear? Uh, slightly tinted, which is, which is the new trend nowadays. I, I believe it's hard to order... You know, a fully tinted canopy. They they don't build them anymore. So it's it's a midterm. So it's likely tinted. Okay, so a glider pilot that you don't personally know, but you really look up to for them for whatever reason or whatever accomplishment. I I, I don't follow anyone specifically, even though as I mentioned before, Kava is someone that we, we always need to pay attention. But I I like to follow, you know, the British team. You know, because I'm I'm a subscriber of a sailplane and gliding magazine, so I'm always up to date with uh, what those guys are doing. And normally, they do great in competitions. And also, the 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 French uh, team. I mean, the the Paul de France, where, where the, the team captain is Eric Napoleon, and those guys they they are also you know ranking very high in international championships. So you know, the British and the French uh, teams is is someone to 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 pay attention. On. Okay, so this has nothing to do with soaring, but this one's for my son. So, your favorite <laughs> soccer team? <laughs> I, I'm I'm sorry to disappoint your son, but I, I don't care too much about soccer. I'm, I am more a a motorsport follower, like you know, MotoGP and Formula One. But okay, so who do you like? Well, Mot MotoGP. I, I'm I'm big fan of Valentino Rossi, but the guy is in not in a good shape nowadays. And uh, Formula One, you know, normally I like Red Bull, the guys from Red Bull. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. Uh, speaking of beverages, what is your favorite adult beverage? It, it's wine, but, I, you know, I, I don't drink too much, just, but eventually wine. All right, nice. Well, that was fun. Thank you, Henrique. I have had a blast talking to you and hearing about your story. Well, it was again. It was a pleasure to 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 participate and keep up the good job. I mean, uh, it's uh, your 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 channel is a very nice way, you know, to learn and relax at the same 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 time. So thank you, thank you for for everything you have been bringing to us. Thank you. Will do, and I'm sure I'll be bugging you again. <laughs> okay, great. Great stuff, Enrique. Thank you for sharing your adventures. Before we hear from Sergio and the story about the first ever Andes Crossing, I do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at soaringacademy. 
A mountain range section 177 kilometers long, 4,000 meters high, and a glider without any radio. This was the scenario Alejo Williamson Davila was dealing with in December 1964 when he took off from the Club de Planeadores de Vitacura in Santiago, Chile, destination Mendoza, Argentina, passing through the highest part of the Andes in its highest point near the Aconcagua. All this without an engine. Hi everyone, Sergio from Sorry Master here, and today we're going to talk about a very important part of Surin history, the first ever Andes crossing in a sailplane. The first ever crossing of the Andes with an aircraft took place in 1918, when the Chilean Dagoberto Godoy flew from Santiago, Chile, to Mendoza, Argentina, in a Bristol M1C, a World War I British monoplane. But crossing the Andes has never been an easy task, let alone in a glider through the highest section of that mountain chain. Williamson, then 39 years old, was a retired Chilean Air Force officer, and at the time he was working for an insurance company. He used to fly at the Club de Planeadores de Santiago and had been analyzing possible routes to carry out a Santiago-Mendoza flight in a sailplane. With that goal in mind, Williamson took off solo by 13.10 Santiago local time in a Blanick L-13. Williamson's L-13, tail number Charlie Charlie Kilo 7 Whiskey, had a radio but it was not operational. Not that Williamson needed one. With the terrain ahead, any communication would hardly be received by anyone. However, all sailplane instruments were in order. The airspeed indicator, altimeter, variometer, a turn bank, a compass, clock, and an oxygen bottle with enough oxygen for 13 minutes. In 1964, way before the GPS era, Williamson only had a map at hand for navigation. Santiago conditions were southeasterly 25 knot wind, 12 degrees Celsius, and a 4 8 cloud coverage. The night before, it had snowed in the mountains and the temperature was low. This would definitely affect thermal intensity, but the conditions were good for wave. The tow plane released Williamson at 400 meters AGL and it didn't take long for him to climb in thermals. In a later interview and in his own words, until reaching the Kalina woods, the trip was normal. At that point, I found some thermals that allowed me to gain some few meters and proceed eastwards, always climbing, little by little, until reaching 3,000 meters AGL. He found himself over the historic Chacabuco Valley. In Chacabuco, he found several cumulus clouds in which he climbed inside them thermally under instrumental flight conditions, and in that way he climbed between the peaks, reaching 4,000 meters from cloud to cloud. After struggling with strong updrafts and downdrafts typical of mountain flying, he managed to reach the Christ the Redeemer landmark, a decision point. He either committed for the next three hours to reach Mendoza, or that was the last chance to return. While climbing a wave, he spent the next 20 minutes deciding and weighing the conditions, and Williamson decided to go. He would go to Mendoza, but now he had to face two difficulties, cold and oxygen. 
Waves over that particular point of the Andes can reach altitudes of more than 20,000 feet, and the outside temperature reached minus 16 Celsius, or 3 degrees Fahrenheit. He had 30 minutes of oxygen on board, which had to be carefully managed. In his own words, when the headache, nausea, and the cold made me want to leave that glider, this served me as an indicator to turn on the oxygen for 30 seconds. This procedure of dealing with hypoxia symptoms is extremely dangerous, but the oxygen systems back then did not have the demand controllers we have nowadays, which can save a lot of oxygen. But it was enough for Williamson to keep on going. During the flight, Williamson had to deal with strong rotors and downdrafts as he passed under each of the lenticular clouds. Sometimes he had to manage height losses by going 30 kilometers backwards to climb under the lenticular cloud he had just left to be able to climb up again and keep on going. Even with the cold, Williamson reported that he was sweating from so much tension. The only alternative in that part of the Andes would be the Ospalata town, but it was out of reach. In reality, any emergency landing in that region back then had zero chances of survival. In his own words, with luck, after passing a mountain range, I found 0.5 meters per second, which I used every meter to reach Uspalata. From there, Williamson re-entered the canyon of the Mendoza River on the way to Potrerichos, from where he would have to make the last great height gain to cross the Plata region. This part of the flight was less difficult. By 18.50 p.m., the silhouette of Mendoza appeared over the horizon. In his own words, that moment was very emotional for me. From there, I went directly to El Plumericho Airport, where I landed after a 5-hour, 15-minute flight, in which I reached a maximum altitude of 18,300 feet. After landing, Argentine authorities were stunned when they saw Williamson's barogram and the Chilean glider on Argentine soil. Williamson, who took off as an ordinary man, had put his name in aeronautical history. Even though he was not used to the spotlights, he was highly honored by the Argentine Air Force and Lan Chile, a famous Chilean airline of that time, upon learning of the feat, sent an airplane with his family, journalists, and club colleagues to bring Williamson and the Blanik back to Santiago. Williamson was honored by several Chilean authorities. He had open car parades in Santiago, and he was awarded with the 1968 Otto Liental Medal by the International Aeronautical Federation, the FAI. The glider is now displayed at the Chilean Air Force Museum in Los Cerichos, and in June 2014, Williamson passed away. He was 88 years old. Nowadays, the Andes crossing is a rather common thing for experienced sailplane cross-country pilots with many planned routes, but Williamson will always be remembered as the first person ever to challenge the Andes without an engine. If you want to know more about soaring techniques and soaring history, follow me on Instagram at soaringmaster or check my website, soaringmaster.com. See you guys. 
Thank you, Sergio, for that great story. Looking forward to hearing what you have for us on our next episode here on the podcast. If you have a story for us, we would love to hear it. All you need to do is head on over to SoaringTheSky.com, click on the Contact Us tab, go down to the microphone, hit it, record your story, and share it with the Soaring community. There's a pretty good chance it will be on the podcast if you do that. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.